0: centric hymns about Jesus and his humility. So this is the word of the Lord. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. is lord to the glory of God the father. Well maybe it's obvious to you at this point that I'm really interested in relationships, how they work, what makes them thrive, not just because I'm a pastor, but I'm married, I need to figure out how I inflict pain on my wife. What is it I lack in my approach to our relationship? And because I'm a father uh, of two sons and, as you know, a daughter, and somehow, maybe you dads of daughters will appreciate this, there's sort of this deeper interest in my daughter's welfare and her marriage than my son's. I, it's just kind of weird. Am I weird? Or do dads understand that? Like, my daughter's married now. She got married in, in June. And, and I want her to be really, really happy I want her to thrive. I want her to be married to a gem. I want her to be married to Jesus, right? (laughs) Uh, That's the way we dads feel about our daughters. And so what do I pray for my daughter's marriage? Lord, fill it with humble, other-centered servanthood. Make Wesson her husband, full of humble, other-centered servanthood. Why? Because that marriage will thrive under those conditions. And of course, when I'm praying that, the Lord goes, "Uh, what about you, Mike? (laughs) What about your marriage? And your church will thrive with humble, other-centered servanthood. Here's the proof text. Here's where that notion comes from. This is a grace to be praying constantly for yourself, your spouse, your kiddos, your church. Humble, other-centered servanthood. My, can we do a lot when that grace is pulsating through the veins of the body of Christ. But it's really hard to come by. It's like finding an aircraft carrier in Kansas. It's really hard to come by. And Paul knows that. That's why the foundation of this grace is the way he begins in verse 1. So, if there is any, and what does he do? He lists some of the benefits of belonging to Christ. Comfort, love, He is saying, I want you feasting at the table of the work of Jesus for you before you start to enter into this rigorous, challenging, seemingly impossible endeavor of other-centered servanthood. We need to be nourished at the table of the feast of God's grace before we can do this. And it's a family table, right? Being of the same mind, same love, of full accord, of one mind. Paul knows that our mutual union with Christ, but whereby we all possess this encouragement, this comfort, this love in Christ, it's on the foundation of that we can begin to express the love of Jesus tangibly, concretely, with humble, other centered servanthood. That's the foundation. So don't try this at home <laughs> without union with Christ and relishing those benefits and being nourished on those. The next thing he does is he identifies two sinful motives that destroy humble other sinner servant. The next thing he does, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition. motives what is selfish ambition that is simply when i pursue what makes me happy at the expense of your welfare i have elevated myself above you what does that do to unity well by definition it destroys unity so think of it self-promotion has to create demotion of others i cannot be about myself without putting your needs lower than mine. That destroys unity. That's one sinful motive. Selfish ambition. It's a whole other discussion. We won't go into it now, but I just want to acknowledge it's a whole other discussion. What does it look like to, be, to have spiritual ambition, to be confident in what God's called you to do, and to pursue it with all your heart? It's a different discussion for another day. <coughs> Selfish ambition, and then secondly, conceit. What is that? That's an overinflated sense of self. And if I have puffed myself up with conceit, what am I blind to, by definition? Your needs. The, thing that, the things that keep us unified as a body. So if I'm looking down on you, how do you feel? Well, you feel lesser, you feel inferior, when in fact you're not... Because the ground is so level at the cross. This is where Paul goes in this passage. That at the cross, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There's no one in the church who is an equally needy of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. We all equally bow the knee and confess him as Lord. We're all equally in need of the same salvation and the same Lord. That's why conceit and and, um, selfish ambition are so antithetical to what Jesus has done for us. So, in other words, I can't love you if our relationship is all about me. And we do that. We make our relationships about ourselves. And we end up manipulating people to get our needs met. Do you know how you do that? You need to know that about yourself because you're wired to that. You're wired for that. If our relationship is about me, what I need, control, to appear competent, to be liked, I've made that relationship something that's fracturing under the gospel. We're not unified. I've made it about me. So, what you'll see on your handout are a couple of ways you can ask yourself... How do I understand my impact on other people? Humble, other-centered servanthood requires me to know how others experience me. What's my impact on them? We call that self-awareness. A lot of us lack self-awareness of how we impact others. Um, I'm in the presence of people, and I'm just like, this person has no idea how they're impacting me. None. And I want to ask... Where's the gospel in that? The gospel requires you for humble, other-centered servanthood's sake to understand your impact on others. For example, and I've listed some things so so you can meditate on them in your spare time. Does your experience of me pull you to me or push you from me? Do my words, my demeanor, my eye contact create, create a welcoming space? Or an unwelcoming space? Does my presence, my tone, uh, my posture bespeak safety or risk? It's kind of that old saying, when mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Right? Because we're experiencing mama in a certain state and we all want to stay away. What sort of space do you bespeak by the way you interact with people? Are my reactions, whether spontaneous or planned, pleasant Do you sense right now that nothing in the world is more important to me than your welfare? When I read the Gospels and I see Jesus interact with people, that's the sense I get. That the person in focus, that person knows I have the unbridled attention of the Son of God. Which, of course, you do right now. Jesus never doesn't have you as the apple of his eye. Jesus is never not praying for you. Jesus is never not serving you. Jesus is never not intensely interested in your every thought. We get to mirror something of that glory in the way we're attentive to others. Do I have to endure you talking at me, unaware of dominating the discussion, or are you grateful that my questions and responses are drawing you out, giving you a receptive audience? So, to be a little simplistic and to use extremes, the next little group of words simply ask you to put yourself on a continuum. As a rule, as a rule, depending on the situation, depending on the person, context, all of that, as a rule, do you tend to be more caring, sympathetic, and concerned, or aloof, distracted, and uninterested? As a rule. There are extremes. As a rule. Do you tend to be more open, inviting, and warm, or shy, self-protecting, standoffish, and cold? You've got to know this about yourself. People experience you in a certain way. Love wants to know, what's my impact on you? We can't have humble, other-centered servanthood without an honest estimation of how people experience us. As a rule... Am I disarming and vulnerable or overbearing, dominating, or condescending? You get that the right way to be is on the left and the wrong way to be is on the right. You get that. <laughs> As a rule, are you attentive and focused or controlling, self-absorbed, and demanding? As a rule, am I genuinely affirming of others or merely selfishly seeking their approval with flattery as a rule are you engaging engaging interested and inquisitive or unapproachable critical or self-promoting so rest assured people experience you in one way or another they'll draw conclusions about you humble love wants to know is my impact on you promoting your welfare do you get the sense i'm serving you So a classic example is in a discussion with somebody, you begin to share an experience. Uh, Maybe it's as simple as, oh, I went riding on a horse. The next thing you know, that person has jumped into their experience of horse riding, and you've listened for the next 45 minutes about all their experience with horses. They know nothing more than you had jumped on a horse. See what I'm saying? That's an extreme example. Do you turn all the discussions to your experience? Do you want people to know... How smart you are, how much you know. Okay. Pride, this thing Jesus wants us to see by the log spec image, pride renders us, in terms of extremes, of either caring too much what people think, or, you got it, on the other extreme, too little. So I'm beset. With a pleaser idol, this is one of my besetting sins. I've been seeking to kill it for decades. I care too much what people think about me. Why is this dangerous? I've made the relationship about me. I may fail to say the hard thing to you because if I do, I risk losing your approval. I know this about myself. It's part of my brokenness, my frailty, my weakness. My sin, it's idolatry at its heart. I don't know how safe I am in Jesus. So two extremes. Some of us care too much what people think. And guess what the other extreme is? You care too little what people think. You go, I don't fear man. I speak my mind. People know exactly what I think, exactly what's going on. I just tell it like it is. Well, what's precarious about that? You really don't care how your words land on other people. You need to care. It does matter what people think of you because you're having an impact on them. Love is concerned with impact. Humble, other-centered servanthood. See? And in both cases, what's not controlling the heart? The love of God, the gospel your sense that nothing in the world is more important to Jesus than you. Okay, those are some bad motives. Paul immediately goes into a method of pulling off this really difficult grace, humble, other-centered servanthood. Here's how he wants you to pull it off. He says, let each of you, no one's exempt from this, This isn't just for the leaders. It isn't just for the youth. It isn't just for older, mature Christians. It's all of us. Let each of you, and here are two attitudes that promote humility in our relationships, counting others more significant than yourselves. Really? (laughs) Do you know how hard that is? Do you know how you are hardwired to to count yourself as most important in any situation? Now, this idea, count, count, In the original, means to make a conscious, intentional judgment based on facts. So in your priorities, you're doing what? You're you're self-consciously setting aside this instinct to go, what's in this for me? And you're thinking, how can I bless this other person? So you probably had visitors to your church who came in and said, Nobody greeted me. Right? It's every faithful church, every pastor's nightmare. Nobody greeted them. And at one level we, we understand why people wouldn't want to come back to a church like that. But what's going on in their thinking? Nobody greets me. Maybe you feel that they maybe you feel that way about CRPC. Nobody greets me. What is it incumbent upon you to do as an attender to the church? Not come in and ask who's going to greet me, but to go in and do what? Greet people. Go up to him and say, how are you doing? How can I pray for you? How was your day? How's school? Humble, other-centered, servant. to go to church to serve, not be served, in the pattern of this really magnificent person who came not to be served, but to serve and to ransom his people by his cross. So h- how do you do that? I mean, that's not the way any of us are wired. You do that, you, you find the freedom for that knowing how secure you are in Jesus' love for you. I just, I just don't know how you do that because eventually, if you try it without, without, without gospel grace fueling your heart, you're going to burn out. You're going to get bitter. You're going to get resentful that I'm not getting anything in return. And of course, what did Jesus get in return for loving us? He he got our sin. He took our sin. We gave nothing. God saves his enemies and makes them his friends. So I guess what I'm saying is if you are driven in your relationships by a a sense of lacking, of course you'll put yourself first as an act of self-preservation because you're all you have. But in God's economy, the way you get in God's economy is to give away. That's how you get in God's economy. How did Jesus get salvation for you? He gave himself away. And then Paul identifies the second method, which is not only looking to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's the other centered part. What are your interests? If all I'm looking at is my interest, again, I'm blind to your interests. You can look at your interests. That's legitimate. My wife loves caring for the grandbabies. My wife also has some tenderness in her lower back. If she throws caution to the wind and says, it doesn't matter, I'm going to do the lifting, the changing, the whatever, with irrespective of impact on my back, then she what? She puts herself at risk of not being able to help at all. She has to have an eye on the interest of her weak back in order to be interested in helping the grandkids. It's, isn't it both? Doesn't it take wisdom? But the idea is you find joy expending yourself on others. And when, when you're in a relationship, when people sense you're all about you, you become a monster protecting your own interests, fearful of losing the thing that's most precious to you, and no one likes to be around you. It's not the reason for humble, other-centered servanthood. The glory of God is the reason for it, but it's the result of not doing it. Do you know what I'm talking about? You know people like that? Man, they're a monster. Not in this church. Okay, can't relate to the illustration. Let's finish then with asking, what does this look like in action? And here I'm jumping uh, to Titus 3. I mentioned it last night. The first thing is to adorn God's mercy. Knowing what you deserve, what you will never get. Knowing what you were in sin and have been rescued from. This empowers you to bear with others. This is Paul's logic in Titus chapter 3, beginning at verse 2. He says, speak evil of no one to avoid quarreling. Be gentle, show perfect courtesy toward all people, including the hard people. What's his reason? For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hateful and being hated by others. Paul includes himself in this list. We were. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, that's Jesus, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out richly on us through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we may become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. (laughs) There's so much there. I just want to point out the weight of Paul's logic. His compelling logic. How can I treat people who I particularly don't like when I was in such a despicable condition in God's eyes? So do you see the, do you see the reversals that the gospel creates? These dramatic reversals? Paul says, God's wisdom overcame my foolishness. Christ's righteousness covers my Disobedience. God's kindness supplants my hatefulness. God's mercy washes away my quarreling malice and envy. God's grace overrules my sinful passions. I just love his logic. How all these dramatic reversals are supposed to free us to see others in a new light that we might humbly serve them for their good. Okay? Secondly, assume a servant's attitude. By de- definition, where are servants' eyes focused? On those they serve. You ever been to one of those really, really fancy restaurants? I've only been to once in Williamsburg, Virginia, where somebody is like, oh, standing over here, and you don't realize it at first, but they're looking at your table, and if you get up to, to get more food, new napkin, new fresh water, new fork, I mean, it's just like, whoa, wh- where is this coming from? They're just utterly focused on my needs. This is a servant. I think the proof text for this is 1 Peter 5, 6, where uh, Peter begins talking about how elders are supposed to shepherd. And then he says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. See how humility is expressed relationally. Clothe yourself with humility toward one another. Now that verb, clothe, in the ancient Greek, referred to a servant tying an apron around their waist. So the way to start the day is to get up and among other things that you do, metaphorically, tie on a servant's apron and that sets the course for where you're going to look the rest of the day at the needs of others. Look, I'm not saying those of you who run organizations, you're in charge of groups at your business, you're doing that, I'm not saying that you don't do that. That's part of the way you serve your organizations by managing them. But particularly in our relationships at home and in church, we have taken up the servant's apron and we say, what can I do for you? What are your needs? I've got my eyes on you. They're not on me. Humble, other-centered servanthood. That's the way I want my my daughter's husband treating her. That will glorify Christ if I treat my wife with that same humble, other-centered servanthood. And even better, if I'm anticipating her needs and I'm one step ahead of how I can serve her. So one small way is if she's been away and she comes back to the house, guess what she likes to find? A clean kitchen. Do I particularly care about a clean kitchen? Not so much. That doesn't matter. I'm the servant. I put my needs on my wife. And what a delight for her to come in and have all the counters clean, the dishes put away, etc., etc. Maybe you can stay. And look, I don't do this very well, but that's one simple example. Stay one step ahead. Ah, oh, My wife is so thoughtful. Thinking about my needs. Why? Her eyes are on me, not herself. Assume a servant's attitude. Why is that important? Because our f- heart's first impulse is to be served. Right? Remember Charity Church Mouse that that singing Christian children's things, Charity Church Mouse? Servants? I don't wanna be I don't want to be a servant. I wanna have servants. Does any anybody remember Charity Church Mouse or the only one? Okay, this is what we played for our kids 40, well, 30 years ago. <laughs> okay, next one. Assess the needs of the other. Don't you love it when Jesus comes to a sick person and he says, what do you want me to do for you? What a great pattern. What do you want me to do for you? How can my resources be used for your betterment? Now, if you ask that question, you need to be ready to do what? Listen. Listen patiently. Because that in person at that moment may have a lot they want to tell you about their needs. They might just need a shoulder to cry on. They might just need to articulate a concern. I got a text from my, uh, the secretary at the church where I'm serving. And I need to talk. So I walked up. She said, I'm feeling a pit in my stomach about this. I said, let it out. Talk. Talk, 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 talk. Process, process. question went, talk, talk, talk. I feel better. Okay. So you're available, you're listening. Like a good detective, you're gathering lots of data before drawing conclusions. As a rule, you can be sure people love to talk about themselves. As an act of humble, other-centered servanthood, let them. Now, there's a saying in seminary where they teach young seminarians, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care let me add this to it people won't know how much you care until you listen much to know good listening is a rare commodity in families and in the body of Christ but what a skill we have to offer in the spirit of humble other-centered servanthood, asking questions, listening, drawing people out, expressing care, concern. I have a list of about 15 things that, that describe good listening. I won't bore you with all the details. Next, act toward them to build them up. This is on the strength of Romans 15:2. let each of you please his neighbor for his good to build him up. So you're listening, is teasing out their needs. How can I help you? How can I build them up? You're seeing them as a building, and you don't know what that building needs until you come alongside and listen, and they tell you. And maybe you see things they don't see, and so you take the risk of saying, you think you need this right now? You may be missing this. What would you think about that? Try it on. Don't make dogmatic pr- pronouncements. Make suggestions. What if, you did, what if you related to your husband this way? Think about that. Pray about that. Let people process. Act towards them in word and deed to build them up. Finally, what is the means of humble, other-centered servanthood? It's have this mind among yourselves, which was yours in Christ Jesus. Paul knows we cannot pull this off. We don't even have a prayer of desiring it until we meet Christ in his humiliation. His humiliation. The most humble, other-centered servant ever to exist. We must meet Christ in his humiliation. How for our sake he came to earth to serve our greatest needs. He served you by keeping God's law perfectly to give you a record of perfection you could never earn yourself. An act of servanthood. He served you by going to the cross and giving himself up to bear the wrath of God for your sins. What an act of servanthood. Jesus is actually never not serving you. So let me just go very quickly through a highlight reel of some of the ways that demonstrate christ's humble other-centered servanthood and the glory of it his heart lay in the grip of his father's glory resolute to do his father's will he voluntarily as this text tells us set aside some of his glories in heaven and came to earth set aside those eternal prerogatives and assumed a body god has a body now Identified with us in our suffering, our weakness, in our hunger, our sorrows. Jesus felt no compulsion to promote himself. Could he have? Look, if I was God and I arrived on earth, it would have been stand back, I'm here, God's here, stand by, here I am. That's what I would have done. There's not an ounce of that in the Lord Jesus. He feared no man, he flattered no one, he needed no one's approval. He felt no need to abuse his unlimited power of control. Boys and girls, remember in the arrest of Jesus, Pilate starts uh, talking about his authority, and Jesus says, hey, you want to talk about authority right now? I could care, call down 72,000 angels if I wanted to. 72,000. I could wipe this city off the face of the earth by snapping my fingers. He never, never tempted to, to abuse that authority. And he endured, as I mentioned last time, hideous injustices against himself without demanding his rights and enduring unwarranted scorn and derision and mocking and ridicule. And all the while, Jesus loved the unlovely, accepted the unacceptable, embraced the filthy. So if you do a flyover of the ministry of Jesus, what do you find? That he, he embodied the perfect balance of grace with truth, Tenderness with conviction. power with gentleness, self-sacrifice without failure, weakness without fear, strength without bullying, sovereignty without injustice, mercy without sentimentalism, anger without bitterness, tears without helplessness, intensity without burnout, brightness without blinding, touch without abrasiveness, and zeal without harshness. No wonder the humble and the broken and the destitute were drawn to Jesus. They found him irresistibly gracious, welcoming, merciful. They were intoxicated with his glory so that the broken found wholeness. The sick experienced healing. Those in darkness saw the light. Those in lies Finally got the truth. The downcasts were revived in hope. The shaken fled to a refuge. The hungry found satisfaction. Those in chains were unleashed into freedom. I'll close just by reading from one of the church fathers, Gregory of Nazianzus, from the, uh, his third theological oration. And he shows us Christ's humility by also showing ironically how uh, Jesus Christ opens the fountain of his his graces towards us in, in who he is and what he was willing to suffer. Gregory writes this. He hungered, but he fed thousands. He thirsted, but he cried, if any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He was weary, but he is the rest of those who are weary and heavy laden. He was heavy with sleep, but he walked lightly. Over the sea. He pays tribute, yet out of a fish. Yea, he is king of those who demanded it. He prays, but he hears prayer. He weeps, but he causes tears to cease. He is sold and very cheap, but redeems the world at great price his own blood. As a sheep that is led to slaughter, he is but the shepherd of Israel. As a lamb, he is silent, yet he is the word and is proclaimed in all the world. He is bruised and wounded but he heals every disease and every infirmity. He is lifted up and nailed to the tree but by the tree of life he restores us. He has given vinegar to drink mingled with gall he who turned the water into wine. Whoever said he could have done it better. Let's pray. Jesus, show us your glory. May we be smitten and in awe and intoxicated with your humble, other-centered servant love. May it transform our families and our church and our world for your sake. Amen.